0: Okay, so we're going to be in Philippians 2 again today. I'm going to look at the second half of that chapter, beginning in uh, verse 19, in just a moment. But I have some questions as we get going. How is it that any of us are sitting here this morning and are followers of a first-century Jewish rabbi? How do we know about it? How did we come to believe that he was the Son of God, that he was crucified, that he rose again and walked out of his tomb on Sunday morning? How do we know any of the things we know about the story of our faith, such as the story of creation, or Noah's Ark, or David killing Goliath? How do we know about the Exodus, the exile. Now, our quick answer might be the Bible. But the reality is that Bibles don't grow on trees, and they aren't found in the wild, right? Someone had to give us a Bible. And more often than not, someone had to tell us about Jesus, about who he is and about what he did. And someone had to give them a Bible and tell them about Jesus, and so on, and so on, all the way back. And what that means is that somehow, there's a direct line from each of us sitting here, all the way back to Jesus and the first disciples. Those lines may all look different, because we all come from different backgrounds and have different stories about how we met Jesus, but ultimately they are all tied together to a Jewish rabbi in the first century and his 12 disciples. Now, why is this important? Well, because it shows us just how essential it is for us to introduce others to Jesus like they did. In our own families, in our network of friends, in our neighborhood and town, and then beyond into the wider world. Sometimes that looks like having a conversation right outside the post office. Sometimes it looks like inviting neighbors over to supper. Sometimes that looks like financially supporting other believers as they take the gospel into the wider world. But it's an active thing that we participate in, and none of us get to opt out. I'm not saying we can't talk about anything but Jesus all the time, But it's also clear throughout the New Testament that telling people about Jesus was their primary purpose. Many of us can recall parents or grandparents who taught us about Jesus. Or maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a friend or a neighbor who gave us a Bible to read. Those people were being faithful to the Holy Spirit. Beyond that, if we read the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and we took it seriously, we found a way to learn more. We got involved with a Bible study, or someone stepped up and discipled us by teaching us about the faith, someone talked to us about what it means for Jesus and the Father to be one. Someone fielded our questions about how a virgin could become pregnant and give birth to God's only begotten Son. Someone interacted with us along the way. That's what Paul did throughout his ministry. And it's what we should be doing as well. And I know we all have different gifts and talents, but shouldn't we be working together in harmony with one another so that our gifts and talents enable us to share the faith? Isn't that why we sing a song like Find Us Faithful? Or the old praise chorus, uh, I want to pass it on, some of you will remember. I know COVID has made some things difficult, but as we begin to move past it and stretch our legs again, We need to find a way to re-engage in discipleship. And I think there are a few good ideas in our text this morning that may give us a bit of guidance for how and why this needs to be something that we have as a priority. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to read in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon All the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As we begin to dig into this section of text, we need to remember the the larger context of the letter. Uh, Up to this point, Paul had been talking to the Philippian believers about letting their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He followed that up by summarizing how Jesus had the humility to step away from his throne in heaven and become one of us, taking on humanity in order to serve us, even if that meant dying at our hands. So in a big picture sense, Paul had done three things so far. He had greeted the Philippians with thanksgiving and love. He had encouraged them to be sacrificial servants, and that term keeps sort of coming up again and again. And then he explained how Jesus is the perfect example and how he enabled them through the Holy Spirit. In this morning's text, he offered them two examples of people who embody the sort of Christ-likeness that he was encouraging. Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's as if he was at this point saying to them, here, just watch these two in action. In introducing Timothy, Paul claimed he had no one like him, which is high praise considering just how many people Paul had around him during his ministry. But Paul clarified that Timothy would be genuinely concerned for their welfare. And in saying these things about him, Paul did two things. Uh, First, he used a Greek word that somehow didn't get fully translated into the English. Uh, The word like him is actually isupsukos, which means like-minded or of the same mind or spirit. It's the same terminology Paul's been using throughout the text, but he used a, a different word here, and so we need to think of Timothy not only as being like him, No one, I have no one like him, but I have no one as like-minded as him, that's sort of what it means. And he, then he offered the Philippians someone to disciple them who was of the same mindset as himself. In other words, he's like, if I could come, I would, but until I can, here's Timothy, He's going to do a great job. That's along the lines of the same mindset as Paul, of the same mindset as Christ, and the same mindset that Paul was encouraging them to have. That's what's going on here. So in essence, Paul was sending Timothy to the Philippians to be their shepherd for some period of time. We don't know how long, uh, but to guide them and teach them and lead them in the faith and to challenge them in their dedication and motivate them in their mission. And he knew Timothy would care for them because Timothy had cared for him. Paul knew from experience what kind of sacrificial servant Timothy was, and that's part of why he trusted him with this responsibility. So what does that look like for us? Well, do you have a neighbor that you need to check in on? Is there someone living near you who needs something that you can provide? Are there ways for you to benefit the community that we live in? Paul made it clear in these first few sentences that genuinely caring for the welfare of those around us is in the interest of Jesus and his kingdom. Which makes sense because that's what Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew seven twelve, Jesus said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And we might recognize that as the golden rule, right? Some of us might have plaques of that on our walls. But the idea is, is at the heart of how Jesus interacted with others. When that means that it should be at the heart of how we interact with others, right? If we're followers of Jesus. Paul echoed Jesus' words in 1 Corinthians 10:24, writing, "'Let no one seek his own good, "'but the good of his neighbor.'" So Paul's saying the same stuff that Jesus is saying. The problem is that I think we're too often busy looking for a, a little asterisk on that idea, right? A, a way to avoid actually following it. Because we know it will take time and effort, and we would rather spend our time and effort on ourselves. So we try and come up with a way to justify not doing nearly as much as Jesus did while still feeling pretty good about ourselves. I can't even keep count of how many times I've been told that Jesus doesn't really mean what he said about this. That when he told the rich man to go and sell everything he had and give it to the poor and then follow him, what he really meant was for the rich man to feel like maybe he could be a little bit more giving at Christmas the same thing or that when jesus said how we treat the least of these is how we are treating him what he really meant was maybe we shouldn't give any money to a homeless person because they'll just spend it on alcohol or drugs after all that's why they're homeless i don't think that's what jesus meant it's as if we desperately want jesus to be far less revolutionary than he actually is As if we want a more reasonable Jesus who understands that we would rather chase after our own dreams than give up our time and effort for others. A Jesus who wants us to have our best life now at all costs, because that's what really matters. That's why we're really here. Like, that's our God-given purpose. That's not. We're so self-centered that coming face-to-face with the radically different way of Jesus and his kingdom bothers us to the point where we shift into cognitive dissonance over it. We start denying the reality that Jesus is presenting it. We see Jesus, where where, what we see Jesus doing is somehow not what he wants us to do. This turns the gospel into something Jesus did for us, but nothing more. In other words, it ceases to have anything to do with who we are or what we dedicate ourselves to. It's only about keeping us out of hell. That's all. As if we're like, good job, Jesus, thanks. And then it's back to doing what I want because I'm what really matters. But this is why Paul vouched for Timothy's character and said he had proven worth. Paul had taught Timothy about the way of Jesus and had watched him dedicate his own life to the radical reality of who Jesus was. And Paul knew that for whatever faults he might have, Timothy would act like Jesus by caring about the Philippians first and foremost. Because that's what Paul had seen him do in his own life. And it's not that Timothy was perfect and that none of us could ever possibly live like Jesus. Timothy was being perfected by the same Holy Spirit that is at work in each and every one of us who have given our lives to Jesus, which means everything we need to care about others and follow the revolutionary way of Jesus is already inside of us. We just need to surrender to it, to stop chasing our own dreams and desires and let God's Spirit loose that we might be like him. Character is proven by action. When choices come our way, who we are shows up, right? Especially under pressure, and especially when the things we care about most are on the line. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but it does mean we won't devote ourselves to living in opposition to the way of Jesus. Jesus. It does mean we won't refuse to be transformed into his likeness so that we will live as he lived. Paul made a very clear distinction between Timothy and those around him who only looked after their own interests. That means Timothy's life was noticeably different, observably different. If we really want to follow Jesus, then... Ours will be as well. Whatever mistakes we might make, our character will still be proven of worth to those around us. People will be able to trust us. Where we fail, they will be able to trust us to admit it and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. If we are not trustworthy, how can we possibly do the work of the kingdom that God has called us to do? After talking a bit about Timothy and sort of introducing him, Paul turned his attention to Epaphroditus. In verse 25, we see that he was the messenger sent by the Philippians, and we can safely assume he was the one who brought their gifts to Paul. Based on the things Paul wrote about him, it seems as though Epaphroditus was a sacrificial servant as well. Paul called him his brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and minister to his need. And those aren't casual compliments. Paul thought highly of Epaphroditus. He seems to have thought as highly of him as he did of Timothy. Paul wanted to send him home. Not because he wasn't helpful, but because in serving Paul, he had actually gotten sick and almost died. As a result, Epaphroditus was eager to return home and be with his fellow believers there. He wanted to rejoin them and assure them that he had come through the illness and was healthy again. And if Paul thought that his illness was a result of something he encountered while he was in Rome, and he may well have been sending him home as a sort of safety measure so that whatever sickness he had would not return. We don't know for sure. And whatever the reason, Paul was not rejecting him. He was commending him and his service. Almost like giving him an honorable discharge. And The interesting thing about this is that Epaphroditus yearned to be back home among his family of believers. But how many of us feel that way about being together? How many of us yearn to spend time together? Not just in this building, but in our homes or out in public. How many of us long to pray together and fellowship together and worship together and dig into Scripture as we study the Bible together. Epaphroditus found something in his group of believers back home that he just missed, that he longed for, that pulled at him. So that even though he served Paul well and received praise from Paul, he wanted more than anything to go home. If we think about it, how many other believers have we been around that we long for in such a way. And there was a bond between Epaphroditus and the other Christians in Philippi, a Holy Spirit kind of bond, one that could not be broken. And it seems as though Paul not only understood this, but admired and respected it, because in sending him home, he told the Philippians to honor such men. This means we need to be the same kind of people. The kind who sacrificially serve the greater cause of God's kingdom, whatever that might look like, but also the kind who have a deep love and affection for God's people. Sometimes I wonder about our congregation. For the most part, we get along, and and that's good. But I've also heard some stories about so-and-so being a such-and-such. I'm not pointing any fingers here because I've thought similar things. That's why I'm convicted and convinced that we all need to be more forgiving and willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt. I'm motivated to open up those darker corners of my own heart where I hold on to anger and grudges about things and let the Holy Spirit clear them out. Like Timothy Epaphroditus wasn't perfect but he was a person of proven character a person whose life exemplified the kind of sacrificial servanthood that Jesus embodied can the same be said of us will the same be said of us are we the kind of people whose character precedes us when we show up Are others happy and thankful because they know we are trustworthy, servant minded people who will help them? The kind of people whose hearts yearn for others to know Jesus. After all, that's how Paul described Epaphroditus. In verse 30, he wrote that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. What are we risking for the work of Christ? What has our faith cost us? If Epaphroditus was supposed to be honored for being the kind of person who risked his life for the gospel, then it stands to reason the gospel might cost us something. Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote quite a bit about these ideas in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in one part, he drew a line of distinction between what he called cheap grace, and costly grace. He described cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He then went on to describe costly grace as costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. If we look at the life of Paul, it seems fairly easy to say he experienced Costly grace. And if it were only Paul, we might be tempted to shrug it off and act like he was exceptional. But he wasn't. Right here in this letter to the Philippians, after calling for them to be sacrificial servants and explaining how Jesus is the perfect example, Paul offered some other imperfect examples as well. Alongside himself, he pointed to Timothy and Epaphroditus and sent them to live among the Philippians so that they might see for themselves." Our calling and mission is the same as Paul's, the same as that of Timothy and Epaphroditus, the same as the Philippians. In fact, our gathering here is probably around the same size as theirs was at the time, which means if they turned their world upside down by living like Jesus and loving God and their neighbor, we can too. Our calling and mission couldn't be more clear. As we grow and mature in the faith, we are to look more and more like Jesus. Some of us have been believers for a very long time. Are we who we need to be? Are we consistently maturing in the faith Whether we fully understand this or not, none of us have just accidentally ended up living here in this place. We have been called here. We have a purpose in this place. A higher calling than our jobs or retirement plans or our cattle. All of those things matter. All of them need looking after. But our ultimate purpose is to live like Jesus and love God and our neighbor. And love isn't a feeling. A long time ago, Christian singer Steve Camp wrote a song about this, and the chorus goes Love's not a feeling. Oh, we've got to learn to get past our emotion to the meaning of the word. Love's not a feeling we can lose or throw away. Lord, give us the courage to live it every day. Amen. Love is a lifestyle full of risks and tough choices that costs us everything about the lives that we thought we would lead for the sake of the life Jesus led. this is what Paul honored about these two men. And it's not only what we should honor, but also what we should strive for in our own lives. To be disciples and to make disciples. We should follow Jesus with our whole self, just as these guys did so that others will come to know him as they come to know his love in us by seeing and experiencing it. Will you pray?